Hello, and welcome to the show Gold Squadron Gays. It's the podcast where two Star Wars-loving gays break down each episode of their favorite Star Wars TV shows, while also being gay as hell. I'm your host, Bradley Brower. I'm your other host, Charles Rogers, and I believe that love is real, and we have a guest today. <laughs> Hello there. I'm Calvin Keener. I uh, of First Steps, a Star Wars podcast, and I have seen a lot of Star Wars. Have you now? Have you seen Calvin? Uh, are you a comics reader? I am. And have you seen Doctor Afrin number thirty-one? I have. I have. So you know exactly the... what I'm talking about. Oh yes. It was a good week for people who like Doctor Afrin. It was a good week for people who like Star Wars comics in general. It was a good week yeah. for gay people. It was. (laughs) (laughs) We had a fantastic week. Yes, Calvin is joining us for First Steps, a Star Wars podcast, which we already had Wyatt on for episode three. But Calvin, do you want to kind of refresh our audience if somehow, some way, somebody started with this episode (laughs) and didn't want listen to our episode three covered? Do you want to catch our audience up on what First Steps, a Star Wars podcast is? No. Um, okay. I'm kidding. Um, it's yeah. It's a chronological uh, watch of Star Wars, all of the movies and TV shows from the eyes of a newcomer. So we are currently uh, covering Rebels season two, and Andy has never had never seen any Star Wars. Our co-host before we started this, and they have seen everything up to then, and they haven't even seen the original trilogy yet. And Andy we're not going to get to the. Star is. No, well, they have seen the Andor post-credit scene, so they have seen the Death Star being built, but they do not understand what it is. They thought it was Palpatine's metal planet. I think was their quote. <laughs> it's like Darth Vader's metal planet. I think I like is that. what they said. Yeah. No, it's it's one of the most interesting podcasts to listen to because, like, there are certain Star Wars things that we just sort of all assume that. If you know what a Star Wars is, you assume you know, like, the plots of the first three movies. That you know the jokes from the the prequel trilogy. Like, you at least under have a basic understanding. Andy knows none of these things. Yeah. So, Andy is watching this in order. And, like, things that... Like you guys talked a lot about your Clone Wars coverage, that a lot of it is built on the idea that you've already seen Revenge of the Sith, which Andy had not. So they had a much different experience with the Clone Wars than most people who watch the Clone Wars. Exactly. Yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah, it really makes something it. like Order 66 just completely a contextualized. <laughs> yeah. Well, before we dive into the episode, I do want to say right up front, you will have heard, if you have listened to previous episodes, you will have heard a prelude on the Wyatt episode uh, where I talked about the WGA writer's strike. And I do want to say that Bradley and I are going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it on the next episode that Bradley and I are on by ourselves. Uh, We want to give our guest episodes time to breathe. We want to give our guest episodes as much time as possible to talk about the episode with our guests. Uh, So for the moment, just know we are completely in support of the WGA strike. Writers should be paid compensated fairly for their work and bradley and i will discuss this in depth on our episode seven coverage uh which is going to be coming up in a couple of weeks here but i'm going to throw that at the beginning of the episode for now with that out of the way let's take us into an episode that was written by somebody who definitely did not write the entire next season so it could go into (laughs) development in order to get away with being able to still be in development while the wga strike was going on this week we're talking about the mandalorian season three episode five the pirate the people of navarro need protection from rampant pirate attacks calvin what's one thing you liked about this episode and one thing you did not 
I mean, honestly, like I love so much about this episode that it's hard to pick one. Like this episode was just pure Star Wars and it was great. I was on the edge of my seat the entire time. I it, I just like that it hit every vibe. And on a similar note, I mean, I, I did not like the way that my ass felt when it hit the floor, when I fell out of my chair, when Gareth Evarelios came on screen. I do think that <laughs> might be our most clever dislike in the in Gold Squadron history. Yeah, because I mean, I, I don't have a thing that I like dislike about this episode. I mean, like, I guess I... I don't like the Nikto mask because it just, but that's just like a nitpick, you know? I don't, I don't know. I'm, I've, I was, I was having fun this entire episode. One thing that I uh, really liked, I liked how colorful the episode was. Uh, I like how the color palette and generally this color palette for the Mandalorian season three has been very colorful. They're not afraid to have Mandalorians decked out in like, multicolored armor like they're not all uniform or uh the pirates are these like super colorful they've got the red like accents and different accents to their armor and then the guy who's in charge is like this green like swamp thing looking guy and i just i love how vibrant this is i was watching and i was like oh this is so much more of a far cry from like season one like almost exactly the same battle in exactly the same city in season one was so much like grittier and more down to earth. And is this one's like still down to earth, but they're not afraid to like make it look pretty. Like it's fun to look at. Um, the one thing I didn't like, and it was it was gonna be down in my notes, but I'm gonna go ahead and bring it up now just because it is the thing that irks me the most about this episode. All of the pirates are aliens. All of them. There is not a single human pirate that I saw. They are all Quarren or Nikto or Clatoonians or there's an Ugnaught there. I don't like that. I like that aliens are here, but I dislike that all of the good guys are human looking and all of the bad guys are alien looking. I feel like that's kind of missing the point of Star Wars a little bit. If you kind of accidentally do that sort of humans are the good guys, aliens are the bad guys kind of thing, it makes sense in like a broader like, oh, okay, we just came out of like 25 years of a human supremacist state ruling the galaxy. So aliens are going to be the most disenfranchised. I don't think the show is that clever. I think the show is genuinely just like, let's make all the pirates weird aliens because we want to put more aliens in the show. And it just, it it hits wrong. And I don't like that. But I mean, overall, I, I love the episode. And also my ass too hit the floor when Gareth Borelius came on the screen. Bradley, what about you? For me, my like and my dislike were exactly the same thing. I like that Zeb was on the screen. It was fucking amazing. And honestly, I did shit my pants. However, it was also the thing I hated about this episode because it took me out of the episode because I could not focus ever again after that. Like I had to rewind the episode and rewatch that whole scene over again because I was so distracted by the fact that it was so amazing. Like I couldn't, I was like, wait, what was the plot? What were we actually doing in this episode? I had to rewind and remind myself because I was so like taken out of the situation because <laughs> I was so excited. That's not necessarily a super bad thing, but I was just like, I just, I was, I was shocked, I guess. And then I was like, wait, what were we dealing with again on this? Oh, pirate. That's right. There's a plot going on here. <laughs> 
All righty. You want to go ahead and take us into the, the episode then? Absolutely. So we begin on the planet Navarro, where High Magistrate Grief Karga is discussing city designs when they hear screams outside. A pirate ship has arrived. Karga orders the droid to evacuate the civilians to safety. Pirate King Gorian Shard hails Karga, and Karga mentions that Navarro is under the protection of the New Republic. Shard argues that this is an independent world, and he doesn't care. Shard warns him not to hail him again unless it's to surrender. Shard's ship commences and an aerial bombardment of the town. Title card, Chapter 21, The Pirate. The engineer in the opening scene is played by London Kim. Uh, he's been in Barry, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, the Rush Hour TV series. Chances are good you've probably seen him somewhere before. I find it interesting that Gorian Shard identifies uh, Grief Cargo specifically as the guild master of something called the Navarro Hunters. I think that's the first time we have actually gotten like the confirmation of, of what the bounty hunting guild in season one was called. Because mm-hmm. I just always assumed it was like Legends, that it was just like the bounty hunters guild and he was a guild master of a specific section of it. Uh, but no, apparently it's a thing called the Navarro Hunters. Uh, I also find it interesting how grief is so grief. The whole last couple episodes has been like, ah, nah, I don't need any help from the new Republic. We're an independent world, yada, yada, yada. The second he's facing down Gorian Shard, he's like, well, you know, the new Republic and us are actually besties. We're actually super chill with each other. He's like, there's a bunch of uh, X-Wing pilots just chilling right now on my planet. Ha ha ha. Like, <laughs> It's just interesting. He's real willing to invoke the New Republic. He's really trying to bluff his way out. And uh, Gorian Shard even comments that. And it's a fun uh, little scene. I really like Grief's little like city engineering thing as someone who likes stuff like The Sims and uh, Animal Crossing and stuff. He is definitely doing his little city designing thing. What's funny to me is he's like, we should move the trade district closer to like this other specific thing. And I'm like, how, how much money is that going to cost you to do? You're, you're looking to move a whole district. How, how's this going to work exactly? But it's I'm why not it's a like a video game. It's like you can a just video pick game. it up and move it. And like, you know, it'll just happen in real life. I mean, he I did some... move a school into a bar. So I guess it makes sense that he's like <laughs> replanning the city. He's just like, oh, no, no, no. That was a, that's a, that's a school now. That's not a bar. I saw somebody talking on online about how, oh, I totally would want a farming sim uh, set on Dolna during phase two of the High Republic, if you know, you know. Um, and so now I'm thinking, hmm, when do I get my Sim City city management game on Navarro? I think another interesting thing that comes out of this conversation is we learn that part of the reason Navarro was left alone for so long was actually that Moff Gideon was protecting it from pirates. Right. The the presence of the Empire was, or the, I guess the remnant of the Empire was scaring away these 'er ne'er-do-wells. Right. And he talks about like, Gorian Shard talks about like, oh, the Imperial Remnant and the New Republic both like keep their respective areas free of pirates. And we'll see it. Calvin, you've seen the entirety of the rest of the season, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so unlike Wyatt, I don't have to curb my spoilers. Next episode, when we get to uh, the Mandalorians kidnapping back that guy, we do see that, like, the Empire is charging protection money. So I do find it interesting that Gideon was apparently protecting Navarro. Now, was he doing this on purpose, or was this, like, just an effect of his presence? 
was definitely on purpose because like we get doesn't Gideon say in the finale that um he was working with the pirates or was that just Carson Teva's suspicion? I think that might have just been Carson Teva's suspicion. I don't know. I feel like like he mentions it to the Shadow Council or something. Like I don't know. See, my problem with the Shadow Council scene is every time Brindle Hux comes on the screen, I burn with an uncontrollable rage. And so I can't focus on what's being said. I can imagine. Phasma is a good book and everyone should read it. Once I get my hands on a copy, I definitely need to. Uh, yeah. Phasma and Black Spire are, are a really good duology. And then if you, know, if you ever go to Galaxy's Edge and you meet Vi, Vi Morati, you will know who that is. I can now say that I know who that is because I, one, have read Phasma and I just finished Black Spire. So I actually have a full compendium knowledge of the, the whole story, I guess, because it's only those two books, right? It's that only those two connect. books. Yeah. So there you go. So honestly, where's my Phasma slash Galaxy's Edge Five Marathi mini series? Question mark. Why? We bring this up. I feel like we bring this up <laughs> once, every at time least we bring up Five Marathi. <laughs> Where? Why hasn't she shown up in more things? She's literally a face character at the parks. Why? Why hasn't she shown up in more? It's very bizarre. And then, of course, we get Grief Karga does the classic message in the droid thing. Now, it's clearly a pre-recorded message, but he does do the classic, I put the message in the astromech droid, complete with the bend down and slide in there the same way that Leia does in A New Hope, which I did think was a nice touch. At the New Republic outposts, several New Republic pilots are socializing at a bar. The bartender hands Carson Tiva a data disc containing a message from Grief Karga, who requests help from Pirate. Pilot Garazev Aurelius overhears Karga's message, expressing sympathy for the situation. Tiva plans to forward Karga's message to for help to Coruscant, but the New Republic is overwhelmed with requests and will take weeks to respond. Tiva decides to go to Coruscant himself. All right, let's get the let's let's get the small notes out of the way first, uh, and then we'll talk about the only thing anyone gives a shit about in this scene: Adelphi, which is the base that they're, the planet they're on with the base was first mentioned in chapter 10, The Passenger, uh, in season two of The Mandalorian. Uh, however, it did also appear in the novel Shadow of the Sith. So this was actually not its first appearance on screen. Uh, I believe they went there in Shadow of the Sith at one point. However, this is the first time we're visually seeing it with our eyeballs. So I thought that was cool and I wanted to throw in the plug. If you thought Rise of Skywalker didn't make sense at parts, go read Shadow of the Sith. Excellent book. It will explain a lot of these things. The other small note I have is yes, that is the directors back from the first season. Deborah Chow as Sash Ketter, Rick Famuyiwa as Jib Dodger, and Dave Filoni as Trevor Wolf. <laughs> I made it through all those names without cracking up. Almost. Almost made it through. Almost. I came close. <laughs> I love it. I love it when I, I love a good Star Wars name. Trapper Wolf. Jib Dodger. <laughs> I just love that they were like, you know what? We really need some extras in this scene. How about this, guys? Why don't we just do the whole you guys are the pilots thing again? And then we can save some money on extras. Well, I like that they're all hanging out together, too, because like very clearly they are a unit because they showed up in season one to blow up the space station. So there's one other pilot here, but we'll get to him in a minute uh, because I do have one big note before we get to that. And that is this is the first time you can sort of tell in this episode this was supposed to be Cara Dune. Yeah. Yeah. Now I don't have that it. confirmed like explicitly right but this episode makes a lot more sense if you think that this plot line was probably intended for kara 
and not for Carson Teva. Because like, why would Gideon, I keep saying Gideon. It's Grief Gideon. And they talk about Gideon a lot in this episode. Fuck me. Why would Grief go to Carson Teva, a guy that he met once, as opposed to Cara Dune, his former marshal? And then, like, when Carson Teva shows up at the Mandalorian covert later, it's like, again, this scene would have hit a lot more if it were Cara Dune, but it, it's Carson Teva. Yeah, and you can like, sort of tell. He barely knows him, too, because he's just kind of like, oh, I almost arrested you one time. Like, <laughs> it's, it's the like, cops that have pulled him over twice right show up and like i'm not complaining because i like carson teva way more no but the fact remains this very clearly was a repurposed cara dune plot which would have been essentially a backdoor pilot to rogue squadron or something rangers of the new republic or rangers the new i'm sorry that's what i meant yeah so it, it you could see that the little sprinkles of it in there i fully agree with wyatt's uh tinfoil hat conspiracy theory that this is some rangers of the new republic stuff that they sort of crammed into mando season three and ended up oh, displacing yeah. part of book of boba fett and i think that had everything gone through and we'd have gotten the two episodes at the end of book of boba fett as the opener to this season this would have been like the bit where it crosses over with rangers of the new republic like this would have been that but yes i guess not i guess this is what we get what else we get is gar is a motherfucking aurelia showing up my notes just say zeb 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 over and over again yeah for several no, lines i i i screamed i squeaked and uh, nearly woke up my roommates and uh fell out of the chair and he, I, and he looked so good. Jara to Paul fucking walked so that Zeb could fucking run. Yeah. Like, and like, is, I love how they've just been, you know, working on that since then. So nice. He no, looks- I, I didn't recognize him initially. I was like, oh, he's talking to a Lasat pilot. That's interesting. That voice is really familiar because I watched this with my boyfriend and we watched it after watching The Bad Batch because The Bad Batch made me so depressed and sad. Uh, and I wanted to finish The Mandalorian first. Uh, so we watch and we get to the scene. And for the next like five minutes or so, I turned to him like two or three times. And I was like, was that Zeb? Was that Zeb in the episode? I'm pretty sure that was Zeb. And he's like, Charles, please shut the fuck up. It is one in the morning and we both want to go to bed. Let's just finish this goddamn episode. Sure enough, I was right. It was Zeb. Zeb being voiced once again by the incomparable Steve Bloom. It's just, he's so good. Just, and I've been restarting um, Rebels season two. I just watched um, Siege of Lethal and it's, I don't know, Zeb's voice. Steve Bloom does. It it just sounds so good in like live action. It does. It's It's not Uncanny Valley. It's so bizarre how well this translates over to live action. And this was one of the one things that when we were, like first talking about rebels characters coming to the screen with like ahsoka way back when we were like "Ooh, this is gonna be one of those ones where like i don't think they're ever gonna do it because it's just not gonna look right or it's just not gonna sound right or it's just not gonna it's gonna be practical and then it's gonna look funny and then it's gonna be not practical and look too cgi and then i don't know somehow they magically made this look like a, just a beautiful blend of practical and cgi and the perfect voice actor like i don't know how they did it but this is like Luke on steroids. This is like amazing. This looks perfect. (laughs) These ILM folks are something else. Yeah. Like, yeah. This is like the Luke Skywalker thing if it were actually good. (laughs) Like if it were fucking creepy and Mm. awful. Yeah. I definitely should have done it the way that you did, Charles. I uh, Because that morning was the Bad Batch finale. I distinctly remember it because I went from, I watched this episode first and then I went to Bad Batch afterwards. I'm so sorry. Yeah. 
That's so funny. Like, I did the opposite. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I would have liked having um this as a, you know, little bring my psyche. Although I don't know if I could have paid attention to Mandalorian after 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 Bad Batch. I was so mad at the ending of Bad Batch season two. I was so unsatisfied and unfulfilled. It's like <sighs> I apologize, but we are an explicit podcast, so I am going to make this comparison. It's like you have a really unsatisfying grinder hookup, so you have to go find another one. That was me after the Bad Bat. And like it was good, the guy was hot, I just left feeling really unsatisfied and immediately got on my phone and found something else. That you got was on your grinder and found yeah. Garaz Aurelios. I found Garaz Aurelios, which perfectly satisfied me in every way that I, I conceivably needed. See, I just want to be in a sandwich between Zev and Callus. I miss Callus. Callus in live action. When are we going to get Callus in live action? That's the, that's the, for me, that's the next step, right? Like, what what's the next character that's making their way? I, I just hope that Ahsoka is just, every episode is just going to be like, hey, do you remember this one character in Rebels? Here they are. Like, And then they kiss. And then they kiss on the battle. <laughs> Oh, we go to we go to Lyrasan at some point, and we see their farm that, according to Steve Bloom, they're like retired to. So I prefer Steve Bloom's explanation to whatever we're getting in canon. Up next, Captain Tiva travels to Coruscant. He enters the New Republic military facility and heads to Colonel Tuttle's office. Tuttle replays Cargo's distress message, and Elias Kane steps into the office, and Tuttle asks her opinion about the Outer Rim. She informs them that Navarro is not yet a member of the New Republic. Tiva argues that they cannot leave planets defenseless, but Tuttle explains that member worlds have priority and expresses frustration over lack of resources to assist Navarro. Ultimately, Tuttle denies sending help to Navarro because it is not a member planet, but it promises to explore allocating resources in the future. Meanwhile, on Navarro, Karga leads the displaced inhabitants of Navarro City as they take shelter outside the city. So our Rodian receptionist uh, being played once again by Don Denninger. Uh, Don Denninger, who we remember is the specialty costume manufacturer. And I do believe she played the Rodian as well in the Pelimoto scene in episode two. Continuing our grand tradition of people who worked in the crew in The Mandalorian showing up in it in some form. Colonel Tuttle is played by Tim Meadows. Tim Meadows has 110 acting credits. I'm not going to go through all of them. I'm only going to go through one because it's the one that every gay man over the age of 25 is going every to know. Every single one. <laughs> every single one of us is going to know what it is. He was in Mean Girls as Mr. Duvall, but he's been in a lot. Uh, most recently, he's been in Ryan Johnson's Poker Face. He's been in Bob's Burgers, BoJack Horseman. So he's just, he's been SNL. in a lot of things. For yeah, he was on SNL for a while. Yeah, he's a big yeah. comedy. He's a big comedy actor, which is interesting because this is a very serious scene. But no, I love this tradition that we have of just like comedians showing up in Star Wars. Like it's the perfect place to get Star. Like I want to see, I want to see Tina Fey. I want to see, I want to see everyone from um that like age of comedy. There, there you go. Tina Fey is Pelimoto's sister. Yeah, I want Kristen <laughs> Wiig. Um, yeah, everyone. Everyone. Oh my God. If Kristen Wiig showed up in Star Wars, I would literally yeah. die. I, I would literally I would, die. I would literally I would, die. I would stop doing the podcast because they can't possibly top that. Like we would be done at that point. <laughs> no, I, and I've heard too that like comedy actors, comedy acting is very hard to do. It's not easy. I could say with my limited acting experience that I definitely find comedy roles a lot harder. Uh, so when you put them in a more dramatic role like this or Migs Mayfeld in the first two seasons, then 
it really gives them a chance to show off their acting chops, which is really, really cool. Uh, so it's awesome that they got a comedian to be Colonel Tuttle, who apparently has only appeared in this. He is, he is not from anything else. I also find it interesting he's still wearing, this is not in my notes, but I just remembered it. He's wearing the rebel uniform still, the rebel officer uniform, or at least a variant of it from Return of the Jedi. Hmm. That's that's just interesting to me. Even yeah. as he's sitting here saying, we're not a rebellion anymore, you're literally still wearing the rebellion yeah. uniform. Well, because I, I mean, thinking about him, I've had questions about like, was he like actually fighting in the rebellion or is he just a dude who was, who answered a job at for, you know, administrator overseeing this thing? Because like I I feel like someone who like was fighting would be a little bit more along the Carson Teva line of not and not be as accepting of Elliot K. I am not. Yeah. Yeah. I also like the idea though that he used to be and he's just so like disenfranchised now because he's just like the mundane of like oh peace like is mundane I guess at this point and so it's like okay well like now I have an office job because there's no actual war going on like we're good now like so I'll just sit in my office all day and I. I don't really care about a few pirates here or there like we can handle it we'll send someone to go get, fix it you know it's not a big deal but then he explains obviously like oh shit we're stretched thin which charles you brought up before like ooh, maybe they don't actually have the resources that they, they claim to have they clearly don't like and one thing that's interesting to me and calvin you'll appreciate this a lot uh which i'm glad we have somebody from first steps on here uh because y'all just finished the clone wars and then also did a retrospective live with the dark side divas uh, crew, which was fantastic, and I was shit on quite a bit in that live, uh, which is appropriate. But it's interesting to me because the rebellion, the whole goal was to restore the Republic. It's literally called the Alliance to Restore the Republic. They have restored the Republic, and now they're having some of the exact same problems that the Republic had. Namely, that they can't possibly allocate resources to everybody so they're picking and choosing which planets get the better resources and the ones that are on the fringes get kind of shat on whoops they accidentally did a republic bureaucracy again so i found that extremely interesting that it it kind of was the same thing i also find it interesting that carson teva has definitely seen the sequel movies <laughs> Yeah, he seems to be, like, oddly suspicious of everybody all of a sudden. <laughs> he is oddly suspicious something going, what, what's going on, Carson? Did you read the Aftermath books, Carson? Did you read them? Did you think they were good? Did you read Bloodline, Carson Tiva? <laughs> yeah, he's... That is one thing, too, though, with him, is he is weirdly suspicious. Like, this does kind of seem to come out of... They established it a little bit in Season 2, where he talks to, I think it's Grief Karga, about how, like, clearly there is something out there you know, moving, but he doesn't really seem to have any evidence to support any of his suspicions. He's just kind of suddenly suspicious enough to be like marching into this guy's office. Oh, I did want to talk a little bit about um, Elias Kane. Yes, I completely skipped over her in my notes, but let's talk a little bit about Elias Kane. Yeah, it just, I mean, one, obviously she's been brought over from, you know, our segue episode. I don't even know what we're going to call that episode, but our, our, backdoor pilot that doesn't exist anymore or hey noah clore do you want to make a 35 <laughs> minute short film right mm -hmm. no i love that she's back in this episode and also i love that tiva immediately is like nah something's going on with her like <laughs> well because it's just wild that like someone i don't know maybe i'm I mean, like, she's got, like, the fascist haircut and stuff. So I'm just like, you know, it's like <laughs> she's ticking off all of these, like, red flags for me. But, like, why are we letting someone used to be an imperial officer 
like the you know in this room where they're able to like make these this kind of decisions like if i were in carson tevis shoes i would be i would be suspicious like i mean yes i get that you we, we you know we need workforce and you know it's good to get these people rehabilitated but like i don't know keep her away from the offices they're operation yes. paper clipping them yeah exactly well yeah i yeah. also just love how she's so good at like Oh, hey, I just wanted to see if you wanted a snack from downstairs. Don't mind me. I'm not eavesdropping on your conversation at all. And then and as he's soon like, as no one's Ew. looking at her, she's doing right. so, she's doing, so she, good. she's such a good actor. She is. And then as soon as no one's looking at her, you can see her like smirk, you know, I find she it interesting. Me. I find it interesting because they've almost kind of made it like designed it in such a way where Carson Teva kind of has to be the asshole. In right. calling out that, hey, this is a super imperial line of thinking, he's right to say it. But when he says it, because of the context, it makes it look like he's just digging at the former imperial instead of being completely right. And that's one of the things we're going to see that leads to, again, the return of the fascist movement by the time of the sequel trilogy. Now we've got to a point where we've made it where you can't call out the former imperials for being former imperial and talking like a former imperial because that's just so mean and they're just so rehabilitated and trying so hard sounds and like the democratic party let me take just a long sip of my coffee here but there are no politics in star wars ever at all for any reason your uniform even still looks imperial the amnesty badges look like rank badges She's the clean-cut Imperial dressed in what looks like an Imperial uniform standing next to Carson Teva, who's in his rebel digs. Like, this is not a subtle show. At yeah, all. they barely changed the color of their outfits. They were like, ah, we'll just add a little more dye to it, make it a little more colorful, I guess, than the <laughs> Imperial outfits or whatever. Like, it's like a slightly different green or blue or something. And then they're just like, ah, well, that's different enough. It's not gray anymore, that's all. We're different from the fascists because it's blue this time. And that was an intensely political charged statement that I will not be elaborating on further. Up next, Captain Tiva flies his X-Wing to the planet where the Mandalorian covert is located. When Din asks how he found their location, Tiva reveals that he was informed by a veteran of the rebellion in their ranks. R5-D4. Tiva informs them that Karga is under attack by pirates and is asking for help. Before he leaves, Tiva promises not to reveal the location of the Covert, and later that night, by campfire, Din gives a rousing speech to convince the Covert to help remove the pirates from Navarro. Vizsla gives his support and leads the clan in chanting, This is the way. Yes, remember how we said in episode two, uh, put a pen in R5 worked for the Rebellion? Here we uh, go. Well, now the pen's coming back out. R5 worked for the Rebellion, apparently. Uh, now, I don't think we actually know what he was doing in between A New Hope and now. We just know that he worked for the Rebellion. He was playing think... poker with Captain Cars and Tifa, and that's why they know each other. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't think I don't think he's turned up anywhere. Uh, this is the thing, I mean, Charles. Because it's, it's implied that Peli got him from the Jawa, or at least that's how it read to me, because, you know, Peli's fucked a Jawa. Remember that amazing detail from Book of Boba Fett? But... So yeah, I feel like R5 was maybe part of the rebellion before A New Hope and somehow wound up on Tatooine. So per certain, from a certain point of view, I, I do believe he was not part of the rebellion prior. Yeah, but how to... much do they care about the publishing stuff? 
It's a debatable point because I mean because uh, they've uh, definitely I mean, like, read the aftermath books, uh, but there's a certain other book that they definitely haven't read. I mean, like thinking about from a certain point of view. I mean, like I don't feel like the the when Yoda's Force Ghost appears to uh, Kenobi's Force Ghost appears to Yoda. This is semantics. Tells Yoda to do Luke instead of Leia because Yoda wanted to train Leia actually instead of luke but then kenobi was like no do luke that doesn't track to me after kenobi but uh, that's that's again me nitpicking yeah i was double checking and he hasn't shown up in anything he hasn't shown up in anything after well then this uh, is their opportunity to do a cartoon or like a, not a cartoon uh, a comic book about carson tiva and r5d4's exactly. adventures i that they need, had before this. i need to check from a certain point of view because i looked at wikipedia to see if calvin was right wikipedia seems to think that calvin was right uh, because it does list that he was involved in the rebellion before it lists that he fell into possession of a group of Jawas. But I need to double check and see the wording on from a certain point of view. It does seem like Calvin might be right and I might be wrong. That he might have worked for the rebellion prior to the events of A New Hope. And he's just been in Tatooine the entire time. Undercover. Because, just yeah, wasn't R5 there just kind of in the background in the when Peli showed up in the first season? Uh, yeah, he turns up sort of in the background. Let's double check. He first appears in episode five. Uh, right. so, yeah, that's yeah, he's just kind of in the background. Uh, and then in chapter nine, he turns up and he projects the map up. And now he's been upgraded to supporting character in this season. So that means sure. by that logic, he will be the main character of season four. They're going to Bo-Katan crease him. <laughs> yep, he's going to take over. It's his story now. Move over, Grogu. This is the... This is the story. Uh, speaking of tiny details in the scene, uh, as Carson Teva is leaving, you can hear the resistance theme, uh, which Wyatt did establish in our episode. See, I said when we recorded the Wyatt episode, I said Calvin's episode is just going to be a sequel to Wyatt's. It's like it worked out to have those two. Uh, Wyatt has established that that is apparently uh, diegetic in the universe uh, and is the New Republic theme that morphs into the Resistance theme in the sequels. Yep, just like how in um, in Rebels you can hear the major key version of the Imperial March, which as the Imperial Anthem. One other detail that I took note of that I think was cool was that uh, when the X-Wing is taking off, uh, this is the attention to detail in this show, you can actually see the X-Wing in Mando's helmet like reflected in his visor. Only you would notice us. Only I would notice this. (laughs) And the editors slash the special effects people in this. (laughs) Well, you know what editors slash special effects people I noticed. I saw this only because I've watched this season several times now because I'm mentally unwell. And also because the Game of Thrones season that I'm watching right now is not good. Oh yeah, you're on season five, right? I'm on six. Oh, I just finished five. Five was hot garbage. Six is also hot garbage, but less bad than season five. I like six better than five, too. Yeah. Uh, We are having our final moment of maybe coming back up close to the surface of being good again before we're about to take a nosedive and then hit the bottom of the Marianas Trench. However, in terms of shows that are good, The Mandalorian... (laughs) No. Uh, I do love how during the campfire scene, they have a speaking hammer. Uh, the, it makes me think of the seashell from Lord of the Flies. Yeah, it's just, it's the talking stick. And, you know, it's very organized and civil. And I love that about them. It's not what I expected. Yeah, out of, a, from them. out of like a, a warrior culture. I agree with that. Yeah. yeah, it is a very restrained, like, 
there is order and organization to the meeting. And I would have expected to be like one of those like war councils where just anybody can shout anything out. And whoever shouts the loudest is the one that gets to be heard. But clearly the armor wants to make sure everybody is heard. So I think that's neat. I think that's a neat detail. I also think it's a, a neat twist that Paz Vizsla is like, yeah, no, we should definitely go help them. I Paz am Vizsla, a- who was going to leave his kid to be eaten by a bird. <laughs> But Bo-Katan didn't give up on the kid, so Paz is no. a good guy now. Yeah, honestly, I'm so glad that they're finally getting off of this murder planet. Like, it's just the Grand Canyon filled with water, so I don't understand why they're thinking that they're getting out of here because well, because everything here keeps trying to kill them, Bradley. Yeah, you'd think yeah. that they'd be like, oh yeah, this is not a great place to live. Like, let's just move on to the next place. Exactly. But... The only way that I can justify it is them thinking that it's you know they're a warrior culture, so they want to live in a place that's where they're gonna have to fight because who else are they gonna fight each other? But then you've also got like, you know, they're not even trying to go and get their kids when they're kidnapped by birds to be eaten. But they're also like, they want to survive. And I do feel like being eaten by an alligator turtle, like every five minutes, not really conducive to keeping all of your people alive. But hey, it gives weight to Den's line about our our children playing in the sun. Yes. Also, pay no attention to all of the death flags that are accumulating behind Paz Vizsla in retrospect. Uh, I'm sure those won't be important later on in the season. On the way to Navarro, Bo-Katan briefs the covert on the plan to attack the pirates. Once they arrive, the pirates are pillaging Navarro City and terrorizing its inhabitants. Din attacks Gorian-charged ship, and Karga thanks him for his help. With the main ship distracted, Kreese flies over the city, allowing the Mandalorians to drop down to the surface and engage in a gun battle with the pirate. Vane and his fighters pursue Kreese's starfighter, but she takes them out and damages the main ship. Meanwhile, the armorer takes out several pirates in Karga's office, and Vizsla leads the ground forces to drive out the remaining pirates from the city. Vane, being the last fighter, abandons the pirate crew, and Shard attempts to shoot at the citizens. Din and Kreese bring down his ship by targeting the ship's last engine, causing it to crash and explode. Congratulations, you just summed up about 20 minutes of episode. Yeah, I, you know, honestly, I couldn't not do it because it's just one big action sequence. I couldn't not do it. It was a really well done. Or like, a, I feel like it was a pretty good pacing on action wise. Like, I find that with some action within Star Wars that I kind of like lose interest about halfway through just because oh, it's like sure. woo action. But this was, I it was, I mean, they flipped it between everyone valleys, going yeah. really well, and when the and armor we, came we in, will, it was awesome. We will get to to why that probably is when we get to who actually directed this episode. Bo, I believe, identifies Gorian Shard's ship as a Cumulus class Corsair. I just double checked it, and this is the first time we've seen one of those. It looks so much like the Eclipse to me that I can't not see it, uh, which is why I double checked to make sure that this wasn't a reference. But it does seem like they just borrowed vaguely what the Eclipse looked like in Legends. Din says uh, that I like those odds in response to being told that he's outnumbered 10 to 1 as a nice callback to the very first episode of the show where he's confronted by the four stormtroopers, and he says, I like those odds. Anyway, let's talk about the most important thing in this section, which is the Anzellans. Everybody Um, come and look! I'm surprised that they stayed in the city. I'm glad that they were still safe after the pirates came in. 
and started ravaging everything. The I guess they weren't really didn't know noticed. They were there. Yeah. yeah, I was gonna say they probably were just like, "Hey, what's that little mini door on the side of the bar yeah. over here? That's weird. I think I'm just too drunk to know what that is." The little, and then they moved on. Little doozer door. Yeah, they're just uh, like, "Is that like a cat door?" Or, oh well, it's not open, so who cares? Yeah, did I watch Fraggle Rock. No. There's these um in Fraggle Rock, there's these little creatures um called the Doozers that build just stuff out of sugar. And uh the Anzellans reminded me of the Doozers. It's Fraggle Rock is great, guys. I love it. Bradley, is this what it feels like every time I make a reference that you don't get? Every time you make a Legends reference, or every time you make a reference to the High Republic, or every time you make a reference to a book, or every time you make a reference to a comic book, or every time you make a reference... I'm just kidding. Yeah. Don't forget it's... the games, the animated shows, uh, the shorts, yeah, uh, the short comic books. Um, <laughs> also the audio... I would say the audio dramas, but you have listened to all two of the audio dramas. You, you're missing Tempest Runner, uh, but you have listened to Dooku Jedi Lost and Dr. Aphra, so... Oh yeah, there you go. Oh, is it is it considered an audio drama if more than one voice person is in it? Yeah, it's 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 when it has like a full voice a cast. cast. Oh, yeah. okay. And, it, okay, it, okay. and they're like written like as if they were screenplays, like a play. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's probably why I enjoy them a lot and feel like they could make really good TV shows. But hmm, interesting. Yeah, because they're written like scripts. You can actually get the <laughs> scripts. Uh, actually, there's four audio dramas now, and I have the scripts for two of them. I have the scripts for Tempest Runner and Battle of Jetta. And it's yeah, fun. you go through and read it. And it, it's written exactly like a, a script, like a teleplay would be, or like an old school radio play, which I think is a really interesting medium. I hope to write a audio drama one of these days. My next note is the armorer, a.k.a. Ow. Yeah, that was a really great just fight. Like, I, I, I wasn't a fan of the armorer at this moment because I was still incredibly distrustful of her. But not going to lie, she came in and she ate. I As didn't... the kids say. <laughs> I didn't think that they could top the her beating the shit out of stormtroopers with her hammers. And to be fair, I don't think anything will, because that was the first time we ever saw her fight. And she was beating the hell out of stormtroopers, which is always morally correct. There is never a point where it is not morally acceptable to beat the shit out of stormtroopers. However, I will say this one did at least deliver that same level of visceral action. I also liked the guy still standing at the cannon, didn't realize she'd taken out all of his guys. That was very funny to me. Thing is loud. My next note is that the people of Navarro pulled uh, what I call a Game of Thrones battle ending. In season two of Game of Thrones, I'll give the abbreviated version. The entire season culminates in a big battle, which ends with an outside force uh, coming in to turn the tide of the battle and save the day. In season six, there is another big battle that ends with an outside force coming in to turn the tide of battle and save the day. This was a thing. So when the people of Navarro all ran in and were like, we are your reinforcements now. And I'm like, okay, where were you about an hour ago? Did it take you this long to run over here from the lava flats? Like, Probably, what honestly. That's what it is. But they they basically like, oh, just, shit, we'll get there in a second. You guys go ahead, we'll catch up. No, I did like that they all showed up to you know, like capture the rest of the pirates. I thought that was cool that they did contribute in some way to the the battle. And I do think it is good, like from a writing standpoint, that the civilians didn't actually really have to do any fighting. 
Like, that would have made the scene less fun, in my opinion, if there were civilians in danger. If it's Mandalorian warriors and pirates, then that's one thing. But if it had been the townspeople, like, had actually been involved, that would have added another level of drama that I think would have taken away from some of the fun of the episode. One thing, uh, way back at the... Bo-Katan Bo had that really nice uh, part at the, before they left uh, for Navarro, where she was just kind of, you know, giving her debriefing to the troops and stuff, and... It made me think how I'm really excited for season four of Mandalorian because I really want to see how she rules as in like not a battle context because we've only ever seen her fighting from Death Watch to Siege Mandalore to um, Rebels like she's been fighting whereas you know it's been her sister who does like the politics and stuff but I want to see how Bo-Katan herself does. I'm also very curious She did good this this time. Well because- The only things we know about her rule uh, were that she resisted the Empire, and then the Night of a Thousand Tears happened, uh, and then she attempted to surrender, and the Darksaber got taken from her, and then the Purge of Mandalore happened. That's all we know about her rule. We don't know anything about her time, and this is where I wish we would get some tie-in material to maybe explore some of this. We don't know about her time before she was kicked out of the leadership of Mandalore the first time and Gar Saxon was put in. And we don't know anything about her time when she was ruling Mandalore that brief period of time before the Empire came in and bombed it to hell multiple times. So yeah, I'm really interesting to see how she rules. I have a hot take. I have a scorching hot take. I have a be careful with your fajita pan. It is hot take. I think she's going to do a better job than Satine did. I love Satine. I don't think Satine was really able to unify the Mandalorians in the same way that Bo-Katan can. Because as much as as much as I agree with Satine's morality of pacifism, it's just not the reality of the Mandalorian society. And refusing to embrace any old traditions at all allowed those deeply, deeply conservative factions within it to gain a foothold. And I think Bo-Katan is going to avoid repeating that same mistake because she formerly was one of those ultra-conservative terrorists. She knows how they think and she knows how to do things in such a way that people are inclined to support her and not them. That's my scorching hot take. I do want to talk about Vane. Yeah, that was my second. next note, actually. Oh, okay, yeah, I do want to talk about Vane for a second. That was my final note Vane being like, oh, gee, man, I would love to stay, but, like, I just got a contract to be in Skeleton Crew. <laughs> I was just about to say that. I was like, So I gotta get the fuck out of here? Sorry, my contract's been extended. Not yours, though. You know what, though? I really do wish that Vane and Gorian Shard would have survived, only because... I don't know. Gorian Shard is such a good character design. I It's such a shame that they fucking blew him up in this episode because maybe somehow, you know, we didn't see a body. So maybe he got on some kind of escape pod or something before it blew up and we just didn't see it, you know, and him and Captain Smee, the Ugnaught or whatever, got away. That guy did I, look like Captain Smee, didn't he? Oh, no, I, I thought it was purpose. a deliberate callback. Oh, for sure. Because I mean, it's it looks like, yeah. Yeah, so for sure they were doing a Captain Hook and Smee thing. But how did I how did I miss putting that in my notes when I was he's like He's got a striped shirt on. I mean, when I was like <laughs> 6, Peter Pan was like my first crush. Like I watched that movie so there many times. Go. How did I miss that? Oh yeah, no, it was for sure for sure exactly what they were trying to do. And actually, that would have been an interesting kind of not I guess parallel they could have done with Skeleton Crew and like this group of kids being lost in space or whatever with pirates 
like they would be the lost boys and then there would be a Peter Pan figure that is rallying them or something. I don't know. I, I'm trying to make up the script for Skeleton <laughs> Crew, I guess. Didn't but, they yeah, just I release just one of those live action remakes and Jude Law, who's going to be in Skeleton Crew, I think is playing Captain Hook in he, that. He's in Peter Pan. Yeah. Or Peter Pan and Peter Wendy. Pan and Wendy. Captain Hook. Yeah. He has he our Disney might, trifecta. Now. He does when he when Skeleton well, Crew when comes Skeleton out, Crew comes out. Yeah. When Skeleton Crew comes out, he will have a Disney trifecta. There you go. And a a real solid Disney trifecta too. Yeah, I'm I'm interested to see where Vane goes, but I do agree with you. I think Gorian Shard would have been a it would have been a more fun villain. Vane is an interesting choice because Vane's kind of the darker of the two to pick. He seems like, like Gorian yeah, Shard is this campy pirate yeah. lord yeah. who's commanding his ship with the R pirate voice. And Vane is a dude who tried to shoot his way into a school. So I do feel like Vane is an interesting choice to continue on into Skeleton Crew, but we'll we'll see where that plays out. Apparently Skeleton Crew is a, a pretty dark show. Yeah, I also feel like Vane has a potential for, he's that kind of villain character has potential of eventually becoming a good guy or in some kind of way redeeming any past wrongdoings he did by, you know, doing some kind of selfless act later on in his story. I don't know what that story is, but I don't know why. I just have a feeling like he's kind of grouchy at this point. He's not really a villain. And then he's always kind of looking out for himself. And then eventually he becomes a good guy because there's going to be a worse person. He's going to pull a Hondo and, uh, uh, you know, enjoy time with kids and it'll open his heart you know i was about to say exactly it that's the that's the plot of the hondo and padawans (laughs) episode from the clone wars (laughs) like that's it to a t man we have really fallen in terms of quality of pirates in the star wars universe because during the clone wars we had hondo onaka and now we have vane because hondo is like technically alive because the galaxy's edge stuff is sequel trilogy and hondo's there yeah so i have there's hondo onaka i mean i i'm I'm not to be racist or anything or specious but they are probably cousins or something and they'll disconnect (laughs) it somehow and then this is be like he's over here Um, like are they brothers so so that is incredibly speciesist because vane is i believe in nikto uh i'm pretty sure let yeah, me double veins a, veins a let Nikto. me double check that so I am myself nuts. Yeah, no, he's exist. he's definitely a Nikto. I was just like wondering. Vane like, is a Nikto. Uh, Hondo is a weak way. Oh, is that different? That is different. What's different? Oh, because they have like the weird head things. Maybe I don't know. I don't know my. They Star look Wars very. They look very similar. In fact, they look very similar to the point where googling Vane Star Wars uh, does bring up pictures of Hondo Onaka. Okay, so Google is also specious. So there. Uh, God, you're all so fucking embarrassing. True but... Star Wars fans. <laughs> <laughs> True Star Wars fans can't tell the aliens apart. After the battle, Karga thanks the Mandalorians for liberating his city and cedes attractive land to them. The townspeople cheer and celebrate, and Karga declares that the Mandalorians have a home on Navarro. After Karga's speech, Kreese is led to the armorer's workshop by Paz Vizsla. The armorer tells Kreese that the Mandalorians must walk the way together and that Kreese is the one that can unite them all. She removes her helmet and agrees to the armorer's plan. The armorer announces to the children of the Watch that Kreese will find other Mandalorians and bring them back with her. And it is this time that they retake Mandalore. Grief Karga offers them land from the Lava Flats to Bullock Canyon. 
I didn't even have to Google this. I just know it. Bullock Canyon, a very obvious reference to uh, Jeremy Bullock, who played Boba Fett in the original trilogy. I find it interesting that when Bo goes to meet with the armor, she stands at military parade rest with her hands behind her back, like she stands in a military rest, which is a, an interesting acting choice there. It, she's acting like she's in the presence of somebody who is higher rank than her. Well, I mean, they do have a whole conversation about... They do, do have a whole conversation do, do about Do you this. respect my station? You know, do you respect me as your essentially senior or authority? And she's like, of course, like, why wouldn't I? And she's like, well, take off your helmet then. Because this is not a subtle show, Bradley. <laughs> I know. This is not subtle. But although what's funny is I did think in the first viewing of this, I thought this was a test. Like, I thought I she was testing her. I also did not her. think this was a test. Yeah. yeah, I was like, she's going to be like, fuck no, I'm not going to take off my helmet. You're tricking me. And then she would be like, ah, now you have to die. You took you took off your helmet. Like, you can't be a part of the group anymore. I also 100% thought that was what was going on and was pleasantly surprised when it went in a different direction. I was so mistrustful of the armor at this point. Um, I'm no longer, but like, I thought this was a test. I thought that she was going to try to show, so like discord between her and Din as like Din being the fundamental fundamentalist versus Bo being the, you know, new age stuff and still kind of convinced that she was rook cast, but I've let go of that. I also think that she's rook cast and I have not let go of that. It could still be true. It could. It could, you know, it because could. just because, you know, people did stuff in the past doesn't mean they did are doing bad stuff now so you never know she like, has uh, horns on her helmet she's the only one so she that was can't on be a coincidence. Concordia. uh-huh can't be a coincidence just saying also Dave Filoni is not subtle at all so like let's no. be realistic like let's no. be realistic for a second <laughs> the armor is sort of speech I think really should have been what clued me in because she gives a speech about how there's the great forge on Mandalore and there's the forge that was used in the Mandalorian covert and they're both forges they're different forges and they mean different things but they are still both forges the armor is essentially talking about Mandalorians here she's sort of admitting that there's multiple ways to be a Mandalorian the same way there's multiple ways to be a forge and different groups are going to serve different purposes in the overall tapestry of the Mandalorian society but not every group has to be completely the same. And her coming to this realization and telling Bo this is an important step in the eventual coming together that's going to happen towards the end of the season and how the armorer is expanding her beliefs a little bit in order to accommodate the presence of other different types of Mandalorians. She's renegotiating her own religious beliefs to better adapt to this present situation, which is a story that I find really interesting for her on second viewing. I like this much better too, because I yeah. think when we first were talking about this show or where we were doing our episode zero, I gave, we, I, we were doing our theories and one of my theories was that the true villain of the show was the armorer. It wasn't going to be Moff Gideon. It wasn't going to be, you know, Bogatan or whatever. And we were just like, oh, it's actually the, you know, the armor. She's secretly evil and she's plotting and there's right. some evil conspiracy theory going on. And pleasantly surprised. I, I do actually like what the direction that they went with her character because slowly but surely she's just 
becoming more of a like just a great ally not you know there's nothing more to it than that she's just the wise person in the group yeah she really i really wish that some uh religious leaders in our present day and age would uh take the same open-mindedness that she is doing uh the armor really does say gay rights i feel like i i do feel i do feel like she has now come around to the point where she's like you know what gay people are fine actually you know I was against a little this kiss in the to Bo-Katan. <laughs> and then she kisses Bo-Katan on the mouth. I actually thought, you know what? Maybe the armor was going to remove her helmet at one point. Like, because I thought, oh, she's adapted so much to this point. We're like, hey, guys, you know, I get that, like, our whole thing is not taking off our helmets, but we need to show solidarity with the rest of Mandalorians because we need to create a unifying group. And though by doing that, like maybe we change some of our ways a little bit. And one of those being, Hey, we can all eat together in the same room. I had also (laughs) thought they were going to go that direction. I don't hate the direction they ultimately landed, which is it's more of a personal choice thing, Uh, which again, I don't think they really thought it through because like up until this point, they didn't have the living waters of Mandalore for anyone to redeem themselves if they left. Like, mm. but what they seem to be trying to go for is not you have to adapt completely and give up your beliefs in order to work together. You just have to be willing to work together. And her being like, these people are still Mandalorian even if they don't take their helmets off, I'm going to keep mine on because that is a promise that I have made, but it's just for me. I, I'm i no longer going to be imposing that on other people. And she has this sort of uphill battle that we see a little bit in this episode of now she's got all of her little followers who think that anyone who takes their helmet off isn't Mandalorian. And she kind of has to come in and be like, no, 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 guys, no, it's fine. It's fine. It is okay. She's still going to lead us to retake Mandalore. It's also interesting, I don't know how I missed this the first time, that she does admit that she does think that Bo-Katan did see a mythosaur. I don't know how I missed this until now. But she does say, you saw the mythosaur. This is an omen. And I'm like, I thought you didn't believe that she saw the mythosaur in the living waters. What's what's going on here, the armorer? Well, I think maybe maybe she is believes that Bo believes she saw a mythosaur, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if the armor necessarily believes that Bo saw it, but she thinks like, oh, well, you think you saw it. Therefore, you had this holy vision. It wasn't a true, like, actual living, breathing mythosaur in front of you, but you had some kind of miraculous vision because you went in the living waters and because you went in the living waters, you are uh, somehow blessed and you are now the going to be the leader of all of us. And I believe in you. So I believe you saw one. <laughs> You are Mandalorian King Arthur now. That That's exactly the exact story. And she's Merlin. Look at that. It works out perfectly. Does that make Din Guinevere? <laughs> I think that makes Din maybe like Lancelot? No. Or I feel like well, he's more like kind Disney of knight version, than like if lover. the Disney version, he's the owl then <laughs> or something. <laughs> Din is the owl? Yeah. Oh my God. Or is that R5D4? I don't know. Is that is that Baby Yoda? Because don't forget, Grogu's also still here. I don't think we oh, mentioned yeah. it I for, one I time Oh yeah, I forgot Grogu was episode. in this episode. Yeah, Grogu oh, is also so cute here. In the, I am 
you know, the Nubian is a really inconvenient ship for Din to have. That baby, no matter how small he is, is going to grow up. And you have just uh, uh, taken his little window and given it back to a droid. He, he, he can sit on Din's lap for another, I don't know, 10 years at best, maybe. Yeah, but by that point, Din will have a bigger ship. Or apparently, according to Star Wars timeline, Din's going to be like 90 years old. I don't know. Like, there's yeah. people in Star Wars age weird. So maybe he's going to be an old man <laughs> and he'll just go away. He's yeah. going to show up in the new Jedi Order movie just as a wizened old man. Still uh, going to his kid's football game. <laughs> Still going to his kid's football game. One guy, I just think this is funny, when, when Bo-Katan and the armor walk out, everybody looks up except for one guy, who clearly the extra who was wearing the Mandalorian Lorian helmet missed his cue to look up. Uh, so there's one guy you can see, I think he's like polishing something. Uh, how are you, you going to call this extra out? I'm just going to call him out because I think it's hilarious because <laughs> we established from episode eight that you can't see shit in these helmets. So like one guy literally missed that Bo-Katan's walking by and didn't look up. This was very funny to me. Uh, so look, watch the scene again, folks. When you go back to watch it again, you will see the one Mandalorian who doesn't seem to notice they're there. Or this is the only truly gay Mandalorian. He doesn't even look at Bo-Katan like that because he's just like, ah, I don't register that at all. Excuse me. I disagree with this theory. Because if Bo-Katan Kreese walked in front of me, a very homosexual man, I would pay attention to her. Very true. I, These are obsessed with strong women. We so. are obsessed <laughs> with strong women. And when two of them are walking by? There, I, concede, I concede my theory then. We pay attention. Uh, I do like that that the direction they seem to have gone with Bo is that Bo spent time in the Children of the Watch, kind of. She never officially joined, she just sort of lived like they do for a while. And because of that, she has more understanding of that group and what that group values. So now she's in a better position to unify them with the other Mandalorians because she understands them. She's not one of them because she can't be in order to lead her people back to Mandalore, but she at least understands them. And I think that is important for her character. Finally, in space somewhere, Captain Tiva discovers the remains of a missing Lambda-class shuttle and finds the bodies of several New Republic officers. It is revealed that the shuttle was supposed to transport Moff Gideon to his trial, but he is missing. Dun-dun. A fragment of Beskar alloy found on the ship leads him to question if Gideon could have been taken by Mandalorians, question mark? Briefly, we hear the voice of Lieutenant Reed in this scene. Lieutenant Reed being played once again by Max Lloyd-Jones. Ah, okay. Yep, if you remember, that was the... That's the, the Luke Skywalker guy, right? That's the Luke Skywalker guy. He was Luke Skywalker's body double in season two of the mandalorian uh when they initially did the creepy uh robot generated face and then he is the other pilot that is with carson teva in book of boba fett uh and now he is back reprising that role my only note on this entire section is yeah obviously moff gideon escaped yeah it was like is this supposed to be a shock to us like i don't understand like the whole plot this is not a twist yeah as soon as they didn't televise his trial I knew they were swooping in under the rug. Yeah, and I'm like, it is sort of annoying because now they've done the same thing with Moff Gideon three times, where the first season he didn't appear until the end of episode seven, and he was like this dark looming presence over the entire season, and then he shows up at the end for the big climactic climax, and then he goes away, 
barely in the se the, the second season. All the way up to at the end of episode six or the end of episode seven or something like that. He's got a few scenes throughout it, but he's mainly a looming presence in the background, ready to be there for the climactic climax of the season. And then this season, he's a looming presence in the background before, guess what? He shows up for the climactic battle at the end of the season. So it's like, you've, you've just done this again. I wish they would have given this character more to do. I wish yeah, they, they had not done this. Giancarlo Esposito can do so much. <laughs> yeah. Give him more screen time. Yeah. Right. It is odd that they don't let him do that because he is such a phenomenal actor. So it's like, you guys, you have this like clearly perfect person right here. Like, why aren't you utilizing them more? I, I get it. Like the villains don't always get screen time as much as the heroes do. But it's like, at what point are you disservicing like the character by not even showing him for most of the show? We've done the he's a mysterious character every season, every season until the end of this one. And we're not going to do it again. Spoilers for the finale, but it's not going to happen again. So it is a little bit irksome to me in retrospect that they they have done this what is Moff Gideon up to plot twice in season two and season three. And in season three, they barely gave him any screen time. He doesn't even show up until episode seven. He's just talked about a lot, which. Yeah, and all this story is always to happens to be out after like it's always behind the scenes. His stories are always behind the scenes. We never see the stuff with Moff Gideon going on like. Even in season one, like all this shit they were doing in season one, they were like, oh, yeah, that happened. Like, that's it. We don't get to see nothing. Yeah, it is. It is kind of irksome to me. But we've also ended on a bit of a misdirect with the Beskar, making us think that somebody in Mandalorian armor made him Yeah, I didn't escape. quite. I didn't quite get that. Does anybody yeah, else feel that way? I, I feel like that was a red herring of I don't. I, I can ex I can explain it to you, Bradley. Uh Spoilers for episode eight. If you haven't watched the rest of the season, skip ahead about uh, 30 seconds. Uh, the armor that he has is made out of Beskar, the Dark Trooper armor. So Got it's it. clearly someone wearing that armor. But like a piece of his armor just miraculously broke off and just well, yeah, it injected itself in, like, into the, the wall. Like a scraping of it got off in the wall. I don't fucking know. Man. Did, um, yeah, see, did I don't his like, like his jetpack stormtroopers, like not the Praetorian guards, but those ones were they also like beskar alloy armor clearly not because they get yeah i don't think so. down which is stupid of him to not oh yeah. Yeah. see now i'm like this makes no goddamn sense actually now that i've stopped because think i'm thinking it. of the ones in because in rebels um they the some of the stormtroopers had like beskar ish armor right didn't the only reason i feel like we have this scene is to try to make us distrust the the armor uh, the armor or other factions of mandalorians to distrust axe woves and his people or the armor and her people this is just in here to, to lie to the audience essentially which is yeah, a like little that. bit annoying yeah i don't like it and honestly the what i don't like about this uh scene either is like if you take this scene out it does nothing to change the plot or the story because tiva also he already hinted early on that possibly Gideon escaped or we don't know what happened to Gideon or blah 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 blah. he says it in the little Coruscant scene so this scene is just fluff it doesn't really mean anything like all it does is show us that Carson is just kind of behind the scenes investigating still I guess and he's like kind of like hmm something weird is going on <laughs> that's about and it and he, he doesn't he shows up at the end of the season but I think 
generally he doesn't show up for the rest of the season. This doesn't really affect very much. Yeah, I think he comes in later on and he's like, oh, yeah, that thing that I was actually worried about happened. <laughs> and he just confirms there's something. I don't know. This is a weird scene in retrospect. Also, like, why were they transporting him in a Lambda class shuttle? Now yeah. that I'm nitpicking the scene, why were they transporting him in a Lambda class shuttle? Yeah, I don't I don't like the scene at all. Like I, now that you were I don't want to now I don't even want to talk about it anymore because now we're just breaking it down too much. And it's getting <laughs> the the facts are unfacting because it's not working for us. Yeah. Another scene that is from another show from yep. the script of another show oh, and pasted into 100 percent. Yeah. you lifted yeah. this directly out of rangers of the new republic and and this was basically a here's what rangers of the new republic would have looked and felt like never mind that it makes no sense at all it's a proof of concept that they shoved into this season because i guess they liked the visual of it so this episode was directed by peter ramsey and written by john favreau john favreau we know there's yeah, nothing special about john favreau Let's talk about Peter Ramsey. Yeah, because he had some interesting credits, and I was like, huh. Uh, so Peter Ramsey is a director. Uh, he directed in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, Rise of the Guardians. Those were the notable ones. Those me. were the notable two he's directed, but he's also had a big career in the art department. Uh, he's been an art department guy for a lot of animation. Too. Maybe that's why this was so animated, you know, or it felt like I think so that maybe was why fun. it's so yeah. animated. Oh, he is going to direct an episode of Ahsoka. I did see that. So this should be I, I'm, I'm going to look forward to that episode because maybe that means that's a very colorful and fun. Not I don't like to say campy when it's not really campy, but like. Uh, this was campy in a different kind of Star Wars-y way, if that makes sense. Like, it was a classic Star wars camp, not overly camp, like the next episode. Wink, wink. Well, when you know that this guy has directed a lot of animation, it makes the sort of animated, for lack of a better word, nature of the action scenes make a lot more sense. Uh, because a lot of the scenes with the Mandalorians battling the pirates on Navarro, that it, a lot of the beats that are used are beats that show up in animation. All right, Calvin, you want to give us your final thoughts? Hold on. No, 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 because oh. we got to go back. We got to go back. I got to bring up one more thing. I will get shit on if I do not bring up. Is it flamethrowers? Right. So unfortunately, I will get shit on if I do not also bring up that Peter Ramsey did work as an illustrator on Bram Stoker's Dracula. I, I did have to, I saw that credit there and I also had to mention, but he's also been crew on Fight Club, Independence Day, Predator 2, incredible career. Uh, but I do have to mention Bram Stoker's Dracula. Otherwise, I will get shit from people for not mentioning that he worked in this movie. A certain group of people who I will, I will come for one of these days and we will hash out my feelings about Bram Stoker's Dracula. It's coming. But for now, Calvin, do you want to give us your final thought? Uh, Zeb Nation. I just, a great episode. 10 out of 10, no notes. I'm excited for the rest of the season. Let's 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 do it. It's going to get good. Surely the next episode will be something interesting and deep and introspective. Yeah. Hey, it's the Bryce Dallas Howard episode. So. It is the Bryce Dallas Howard episode. You know, the Bryce Dallas Howard episode is always this intense character study. Yeah. Uh, so we'll see where the, the rest of the season is going. My final thoughts on the episode are it's it's good. Like it's it's good. There was nothing in it that I really thought was like other than Zeb. Zeb was a get out of my chair and cheer moment. Other than that, there was nothing in there that was like amazingly amazing, but there was also nothing in there that was really that bad except for that last scene. It was just a really solid 40 
three minutes of Star Wars action. And honestly, that's one of the things I like about them pivoting over to doing the TV shows is we get more time for these action scenes to breathe and you can do an episode like this. You can do an episode that moves a plot along, but we also have a big Mandalorian battle because that's cool. And I like that. I like it a lot. Bradley, what about you? Final thoughts on this episode? Yeah, it was just a fun Star Wars episode. Like, I think it was just classic fun Star Wars. I actually really like the whole pirate thing. I think that is something that we're not getting enough of in Star Wars. I don't know why, but it's just like, I feel like Hondo Onaka show when, I don't know, I just need more of that kind of fun part of Star Wars back because I look at Mandalorian as now the fun show. Uh, I talked about this when Wyatt was on like that, you know, Andor is so serious and like political and charged you know and that's such a good i mean i love when star wars is like that i also love when star wars is really dark and gritty and you know whatever but like this is just mandalorian is always now now it's just a fun show to me like that's just we're just having fun this is just fun star wars this is john favreau and dave filoni playing with their toys and just giving us everything we want randomly and it doesn't have to be serious it can be super campy and fun and we see later on in the season they definitely do that uh, with their golden child, Bryce Dallas Howard. And I yep. love it. So this this was just a fun, decent episode. I think I'm, I like where the season has gone up until this point. I think they've just done a, a fun job. Like they're just doing a good job. All righty. Well, Calvin, thank you so much for joining us. Do you want to uh, tell the people where they can find First Steps, a Star Wars podcast? Oh, Lord. Yes. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at First Steps SW um, or on Instagram as First Steps Star Wars and follow us on TikTok at First Steps Star Wars. Uh, we're, we're starting to get some more TikTok um, uh, stuff out. So definitely we'd like to grow that viewership. Uh, so, yeah. Sweet. You can also find me on For Light and Dice, a Star Wars High Republic era TTRPG podcast. And go and, if you like trashy reality television, watch Queen's Court on Peacock. Also, because I don't say it enough, uh, if you do like this show, please make sure to rate and review us on uh, whatever podcasting app you happen to use. I do not believe you actually need to listen to the show to rate and review us on, at the very least, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So please definitely do that if you like the show. It helps people find it. And that is it. Calvin, thank you so much again for joining us. Thanks for having me. And Bradley, go ahead and run our socials. Thank you for listening to Gold Squadron Gaze. Did Charles fuck something up? Send us a message at goldsquadrongaze at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at Gold Squad Gaze. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Gold Squadron Gaze. Subscribe to us on YouTube at Gold Squadron Gaze, where we post the podcast as well as exclusive content. Please join us next week and every week for more of Gold Squadron Gaze. Because Bradley is an <laughs> editing god, and that is the yeah. nicest thing I will say about my fucking co-host it really yeah. is edited down though like i took bradley, out a solid 30 like minimum bradley like, has only two two things going for him he's really good at podcast editing and his skin is somehow always clear <laughs>